guys. Welcome to Not Another Anxiety Show. I'm your host, Kelly Walker, and joining me today is guest Dr. Sarah Sarkis. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you for jumping on the show. You've actually been on a few times now, but um, for the new listeners out there, mind if I share a little bit more about you with them before we get started? Please do. Perfect. Dr. Sarkis is a licensed psychologist living in Honolulu, Hawaii. Originally hailing from Boston, Mass., she has a private practice where she works with adults in long-term insight-oriented therapy. Dr. Sarkis earned her master's from Boston College and doctorate from George Washington University. She approaches psychological wellness from a holistic and integrative perspective. Her therapeutic style is based on an integrative approach to wellness where she blends her strong psychodynamic and insight-oriented training with more traditionally behavior and or mind-body techniques to help patients foster insight, change, and growth. Dr. Sarkis studied extensively the use of mindfulness, functional medicine, hormones, and how food, medicine, and mood are interconnected. Dr. Sarkis is also a writer. You can check out her blog, The Padded Room, on her website, www.drsarahsarkis.com. Speaking of your blog, you recently posted a great piece titled Fear, A Master of Disguise. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that title? Sure. So titling the blogs happens to be one of my most favorite part of the writing process. <laughs> um, so, and I really enjoyed that title. So what that's meant and what I wanted the readers to sort of think about in their own life is this notion of seeing your feelings as fuel sources mm. and to observe how fear as one of those feelings operates in your life. And I had sort of a secondary ulterior motive, which is that sometimes for people that for whom they're sort of what we'd call quote high functioning, they're successful. They, you know, they're, they're not really in crisis. Right. Oftentimes there's the sense that then However, they're processing fear, it's healthy because things are working out in their favor. So I always try to get people to, even in that sort of camp, to really look at the way that they're using fear and responding to fear in their life. And that often brings us on this sort of path of looking at these unconscious patterns around fear. Now, um, is there a downside, you know, when fear, like you said, sometimes it can um, appear as accomplished or productive. So it feels like this kind of gray area, then it, is it beneficial to operate based on that fear? Is it beneficial for the fuel source to be that fear? Or is there, is there something we're not quite seen? Is there a downside to using fear so heavily as say like a motivation or a driver? Well, I would say this, I would say it's both that sure. our defense mechanisms often really work well for us. Right. And I sort of mentioned in the blog, the ways that I used fear for me specifically, it was fear of failure. And, um, it got me a lot in life and has really taken me very far. Um, so I'm grateful to it, but as I matured, you know, in my twenties and thirties and now in my mid forties, um, there were downsides also. 
and observing that place where you're suppressing deeper feelings in order to avoid feeling afraid, right? Because oftentimes when something's working for us, it makes us, you know, we look sort of brave. We look like, oh, you know, you're accomplishing so much, you must have mastered fear. Right. But that's not always the case. Often the, the way, like for me, it was often suppressing it sure. and not really letting myself feel a full spectrum of feelings. And that makes our emotional bandwidth atrophy over time, right? So the more we avoid a feeling, actually the more power that it gets. And the more intolerant so, we become to it, right? Oh, so completely. That's yeah. such a good word. Yes, completely. Yeah, we become um, intolerant. We, we can't handle it. And then it becomes that even the smallest provocation sort of rattles us. Right. Can kind of shake the ground underneath us. <laughs> completely. Yeah, that is completely. And often what I find when we can take time to really examine how somebody is orbiting around fear, because we all have it. It's a very normal feeling, right? From an right. animal standpoint. Um, it's, and I say in the essay, it's, um, fear like pain is one of the, one of our emotions that keeps us alive. Right. So it's a really it's a necessity. Really, I mean, it's, it's, total necessity. <laughs> it's why we're here today. <laughs> it really is. Um, so but there are downsides and yeah. there are ways that, and when somebody is able to, um, observe how they're orbiting around it, you can really start to unpack like deeper layers of feelings that have a lot of influence over you, but they're not necessarily in your purview at that time, right? They're unconscious. And it's, I mean, so often this disguise, you know, fear disguises itself in like a subtle enough or an insidious enough way where it's not, at least for me, it um, wasn't obvious until it kind of uh, punched me square in the face with like burnout and panic attacks. I had kind of no idea that, um, like you, I often like fear motivated me when it came to accomplishing things, even things like studying abroad, traveling, you know, um, getting my degree, like buying a house, all these things, like really good things, really wonderful things. Except I kind of tipped this balance from moving towards these things because they were my values. Instead, I was kind of um, using them to avoid fear. I'm like, if I accomplish these things, I'm worthy. I'm okay. Everything's all right, you know? And so it creates, yeah, it creates this like, um, like never ending cycle. You know, you like feel maybe good for five seconds. Like, okay, I got my degree. Ah, but then there's this kind of nagging feeling like, okay, what's next? How do I make myself feel okay or secure or worthy or whatever next? And it's, (laughs) yeah, I totally agree. And it's a really good point because it shows to me, it sort of highlights two things. One is this mind body connection, right? That, that when you say burnout, like there's an actual physical process, adrenal fatigue, um, is one of them, but you know, early signs of depression or another one, because 
because when you feel, when you're using um, sort of an unprocessed fear-based fuel source, and I'm going to talk about the unprocessed piece in a second, you're essentially burning your your vessel on an unclean fuel source. It's not actually a pure source of fuel. And you do, because the mind, the body, and the brain are all connected in this integrated and complex system, you have parts of your body that then compensate. Your brain is flooded with adrenaline and dopamine and norepinephrine. Your adrenals release cortisol. And that's that little high that we get right after the accomplishment. (laughs) But there is a price to pay at a physical level. And over years, you see people increasingly, I think this is why more and more functional medicine doctors continue to really examine adrenal fatigue in people, um, that are sort of high achieving, high driving type A personalities. Cause I think it really, you just highlighted that link. So, you know, that's, I, I completely agree. Yeah. It's something that can just kind of snowball on itself. And again, it took it for me, it took it being like very physical, like very physically clear. Um, well, how, how did you kind of know that, you know, maybe you were using a bit more fear than you'd like as, as motivation. Was it a bit more subtle for you when you realized yeah, for it? Me it was, for me, it was more subtle, but like you, I was somebody who, um, was counterphobic, right? And so what's important for your listeners to hear in the, in the parts of your experience that you're sharing are that to see that oftentimes with phobias, when phobias and panic attacks develop, you think in your brain, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm not handling it well. Right, I'm like, right. you know, I'm failing something, right? Yes. <laughs> and you can actually see that it's often after a long period of being quite counterphobic. I mean, you are somebody who sort of went head first yeah. into everything that, right? And then because the mind, the body, and the brain are connected, your vessel burned out at some point. It's nor- You cannot drive a car. Forever without, without gas, exactly, without good exactly. gas, right? Good and, quality and oil gas. and all kinds yeah. of, you know, there's, there's a system that needs to be tended to right. in any vessel that's moving through time and space. And ours is not, no different for me. I was also counterphobic. I am counterphobic. And, um, it was more subtle when you said you had this, even after each achievement, you had this nagging sense, right? Yes. This like, that's what I had. I had this constant nagging sense and I had physical symptoms. Like I've shared on my blog that how I got into functional medicine, um, and sort of trying to use food as medicine and that whole journey, um, was because I, at a really young age, or for me, it felt like a young age in my very early twenties had like severe PMS. And I just kept just not feeling good and not really finding any solutions, even though everybody I was working with was really earnest and wanted to help me feel better. Um, so it really sent me on this process that I went to therapy. Um, I started to explore all the stuff that you and I always talk about with like epigenetics and all that stuff. Um, and it, it just started with this, just this nagging sense that there was, 
something else going on for me um, psychologically that I didn't really have access to. So, you know, I started working in that realm and then really uncovering my own relationship to sort of fear. For me, it was this like blend of fear, perfectionism, Mm -hmm. people pleasing, and, um, you know, a host of other sort of things that I had to work through and they, you know, they took time, but that basically a lot of the fuel source I was using was a derivative of these other feelings that I really needed to learn how to tolerate those feelings instead of just like sort of muscling through them and thinking that like the white knuckling, right? Like just keep pushing, keep pushing. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. That's Uh, Even when I knew, even when I kind of knew better, like that is still something I work on is the, the pushing through, the muscling through. That's kind of my instinct is like, just push through, just. And it makes sense because it worked for you. For a time, it it sure did. Till it didn't. (laughs) Totally. So it makes complete sense, you know? Because there is a time and a place, right? I mean, there is a time and a place for some grit, for some pushing through, for, digging deep. But like you've said, that is not a sustainable fuel source by any means. No, you have to show up to build a house with more than one or two tools, right? (laughs) So, you know, the, the goal is always to diversify people's tool belt, not take anything away. We don't want to take away grit. We don't want to take away drive, motivation, ambition. All we want to do is we want to get you you know, when I, when I think of myself as part of whatever team somebody's trying to build so that they can optimize the performance of their vessel. Right. And that just is always a process of, and there's a psychological component. There's a food based component. Wellness is a holistic thing, right? It's a whole bunch of different threads that we try to integrate in our life. And my piece as a therapist or a consultant is one piece of the pie. So, but you know, we always want to look for that, that diversity of coping skills. Right. Right. I know. Yeah. For me, like, again, grit was such a big thing. And like, I had that, like the healthy foods, whole foods, but like with there was no loving kindness with the grit. Like there was no kindness. There was no gentleness. Like I knew that was something that I needed to add and still work on adding for certain. Yeah. That is (laughs) such a great thing to point out is, is this notion of self-compassion. Yeah. And that is honestly one of myself included. I mean, I am more human than most, which means full of foibles. Um, <laughs> please, let's, we don't have to, that turns it in a different direction. Um, but this notion of self-compassion, I think is critical because that's the component when we carve the time out to observe ourselves, we start to observe how we talk to our own being. Right. And it is, at least for me, um, that was a sobering period of occupation. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is, that's a fair way to describe it. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. And it takes time. And by the way, it'll take the rest of our lives to, and we thank God we have that long. Um, is that one of the, um, most effective ways to see this fear disguise for what it is kind of 
sit with ourselves, see what's happening within. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always where I start, right? So I sort of start with, for people and I'm probably like if people that knew me, you know, growing up and stuff, the fact that I'm endorsing like self-compassion and mindfulness (laughs) is probably laughable to them, um, for lots of different reasons. But in my years sitting just sort of hour by hour in the, in the intimacy of therapy with people, it's been the one thing, first of all, universally, it's the, it is the one request that I ask of every patient and every single person has resistance to it. And all I'm really asking is that we be still and present in our own skin and bones for a period of time. I start out with 10 minutes. I try to grow it or have people grow it. And I've tried to grow it myself to try to do 20 minutes and 20 minutes broken up into two sessions, you know, morning and night roughly. But like, it sounds so simple, right? It's like, but it's hard. It's (laughs) It's so hard. And every human being I've ever asked of it, um, has pushed back. Sure. And I get it because I started to challenge myself to do this in my early twenties and I still have stretches of time throughout my life where I, I, I know it works and I let it go. Um, so I totally get it. So, you know, stillness and just building this capacity to start to actually observe your interior world is the very first step. Um, and it enhances any other effort you're going to make in your life. Is there something that can, can be particularly helpful in that? So sometimes when we look inside for the first time, it can be like this wash of overwhelm because suddenly the thoughts are rushing in. We're afraid. We're kind of sometimes afraid of our own like bodily sensations. What can kind of help us? I think it's so easy within like five, 10 seconds to get caught in the dialogue and not be that observer that's just kind of watching what's happening? Is there something that can help us in the moment, um, whether it be like an anchor or whatever, to just kind of Mm -hmm. maybe gently remind us that, wait, remember my intention was just to kind of watch what was going on, not necessarily get involved with what's going on in the interior world here? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And what I would say to that is that Yes, there is. And, and we'll sort of cover that, but also that that's the process. Yeah. That's actually the very fact that you sat and for 15 seconds, you sat there and sort of white knuckled. This is the process. So next time, try to get 16. And then the time after that, try to get 17. And so that you almost don't even, I try not even to engage with a client's resistance to it in the sense that even getting into that discussion at some sort of, if we really go meta on this, right? Like (laughs) even as helpers, as coaches, consultants, guides, you know, fellow explorers, when we even engage in the discussion of how you could do it better, we're now on that scale with our client, the judging scale, right? Exactly. The collating, the, you know, 
but I will say this. Um, some, uh, there's a, there is the style of meditation, lots of different ones. I'll just reference one here, transcendental meditation that does use the power of mantras and mantras, like you said, they're an anchoring. That's what they help mm. with during any sort of ceremonial. So mindfulness, prayer, whatever version you want to call it, where you're sort of still in your experience, not forcing anything, right? We're not trying to feel grateful. We're not trying to feel happy. We're just feeling. Um, so for people that really were interested in the use of mantras, um, you know, transcendental meditation is something that, um, and I think, although I don't want to be like necessarily quoted on this, but I'm pretty sure that it's the most studied, most scientifically mm, studied sure. form, right? And um, we can put like in your show notes, a bunch of links. There's a bunch of super interesting guys that are um, heading that movement in this, in America. Um, and there's lots of celebrities that do it and really endorse it. So for anybody that's interested, they can just sort of like click there and, um, that can be really helpful. But mo the most important piece that I would want people to hear is that, that this is truly something that doesn't exist on a scale of success or failure. failure. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, um, that can't be said enough. You know, it really can't. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And that's a hard scale to give up. We're like junkies. We love like, our analytical judging mind, right? Like we love do. that. We, it's, we want to put everything in its box, good or bad, right or wrong, <laughs> black and white. Yeah. And it's uh, it's an easy habit to fall into time and time again. Yeah, and from a developmental standpoint, that's the part of the brain that sort of allowed us to like rise up as right. like a, a more intellectually superior animal, quote sure. unquote, right? That cerebral cortex. So like old habits die hard, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have we have just evolution pulling us toward doing this kind of higher order thinking. But I, I do think that it's it's an epidemic these days that it's sort of like the inmate starts to run the asylum. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when we can observe that, and if we carve out that practice, um, I always just say to people, like, nothing bad is ever going to come from it. Yeah. Right. And if, say, we're like in that very sensitized place and we start to feel completely overwhelmed by the experience... I think it's worth repeating again, like even if you have to leave that session with yourself, it's not a failure, right? No, right. no, nothing is wasted. Right. Like you, you took that time. And if you think about emotional um, flexibility mm -hmm. as, a, as a muscle, yeah. then you just exercised it. You just did so, a bicep curl. <laughs> exactly. Just... And, and you, you, by the way, you exercised it to fatigue. And so you ah, pushed it. Yeah. You, one. you pushed it to its, to its, its last place that it could go. Right. And that means that there will be a period of recovery and recovery is always uncomfortable. This one will be psychological. So you will be uncomfortable, but you are getting quote stronger. Now I would substitute stronger if I'm going to be super nitpicky, um, <laughs> with you're becoming more flexible, flexible. Sure. And to go back to your really good word from earlier, tolerant tolerant yeah 
It's really about emotional tolerance and flexibility, the ability to sort of begin to reacquaint ourselves with these really strong feelings. And I say in the essay, um, and, you know, writing sort of allows for more flowery language, but, (laughs) you know, fear from a neurobiological standpoint is no, it's no different a feeling than love, intuition, like all the, the, the feelings that we really love feeling, which have the exact same intensity. We just deem them pleasant. Yeah. We just decided these are, these are the ones I want and these are the ones I do. And you know, culture has an impact on, on that too. It's sure that it's like that whole movement of think positive, be positive, be happy, like the forced kind of positivity, no room for any of the quote unquote negative emotions that all deserve to be honored too, because they play a really important role. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, I increasingly, and I really value, there's a place where I really value the gratitude and positivity movement because it's brought, it continues to bring in this discussion of like being mindful of just really beginning to be observant of what you're experiencing in life. But I really steer clear of, um, you know, my role is not to tell people what they should feel. My role is to be in the sidecar and provide partnership and collaboration to anything you feel. What, like whatever emotional weather you're riding through in that sidecar, right? Like it could be a sunny day, it could be a tornado. A hundred percent. And I believe to really achieve sort of optimal performance or, you know, I have a lot of people that come in and let's be frank, they want to perform better, you know, and you can define perform in any domain, right? Um, look better, make more money, um, feel more connected in their family, feel more in control of their life. I mean, we can define it not just financially. Right. Um, and you know, so sometimes it is a bit bit of a tough sell to (laughs) sort of gear them up for like that. We actually have to let you feel more. And that includes more fear, sadness, pain, grief, Feeling out of control, right? That's probably a big one. Like, hundred percent. Yeah. And you know, but before we kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask: Are there? You know, we kind of talked about perfectionism. Are there other common ways that come to mind for you? Common ways that fear disguises itself that are a little more insidious or or subtle? Yeah. Um, And on the blog, I sort of go through some of them, but like all, like most of the people that I work with, when there's like like I was saying earlier, sort of high achieving, right? Mm-hmm. So like a lot of the, like the drive that sort of pulls, you know, men and women nowadays to be like CEOs and COOs and entrepreneurs and that kind of drive is often, I would say a hundred percent of the time in my experience, <laughs> um, maybe I should say 99 to be more, you know, flexible. Um, so 99% of the time that's orbiting around, um, this relationship to fear. And it's always beneficial to observe what's 
under the surface driving it. Also, like fear, fear of missing out. I had mentioned earlier, people pleasing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really an endless number of ways in which fear is operating because it is a very primal emotion, right? It's, it's exists in all of us. Right. So my task is often to just start to try to observe out loud where I might see it right, where I might see it operating for an individual person. And then generally, like, once you sort of hit on something that somebody feels is like a real core truth. Like they're they clinging know. to it, right? Like they know it too. Sure, they know, yeah. Like that stuff you know? that we cling to that defines us. Yeah, um, like the border town between unconscious and conscious is like the sure. blink of an eye. Right. It it's is. Complete, it's completely <laughs> unconscious till the very moment that it's not. And then once it is not, it can never be unconscious again. You right. can pretend to not see it. Right. But you you actually are using suppression, not repression. But so you can never unknow it. Um, so usually when you hit on something um, and, you know, therapy, you're often not hitting on something very you know, it's like you're meeting with them every week, not every time you're hitting out of the park. But when you do, you know, and the person feels it. You feel it. You feel it. Yeah. Uh, you do. You feel it. Um, so I would challenge everybody who is curious about this kind of stuff, right? Like this is like this stuff is my gig. I know it's yours, too. So it's like but I would challenge anybody, um, even if they're not on the list that I just said to start to just be curious about that. How does fear play a role in your life? And when you feel it, what's ha- what happens for you? Mind, body, right? Mind, body, brain. So like, where do you feel it in your body? What does that send to your brain? And then what does your brain translate that into thoughts? And if you begin to observe that, you're just going to get a ton of data about stuff that you didn't even link together. And I was just going to ask, you know, are there certain clues that it might be time to tune in? But it sounds like everyone can kind of benefit from tuning in and getting a little curious, like how is this fear operating in, in my life in ways that I might not see? But are there certain clues that it might be time to tune in? Like if there's an unsettledness or... A- totally. Just like when you were describing your experience with being a a sort of a fear junkie. Right. And like, and then I was sort of piggybacking off of that. It's like, you can have really overt signals, right? Like to to me, panic attacks are always an indication. And here's the good news that your body is really communicating like loud, (laughs) loud and clear, right? It is loud. (laughs) Listen up now, (laughs) listen up. And we chatted one other time and we sort of said, you know, once you pay attention to panic, you can get it under control, right? Like it's, it's really the tantruming baby. And once you learn its language, you really can wrangle that beast back into its cage, right? And then you get to these deeper layers of feelings. So sure, there's overt feelings. And those ones are definitely obvious, but there are more subtle ones. Like I had that nagging sense, like, I don't know, I just had an unsettled feeling inside of me. I can't say it was overt anxiety at that time, 
But I look back now at 43 and I'm like, oh yeah, you had like a low burning, quote, anxiety disorder. But really at its core, it was something so much more complex. And by the way, beautiful, painful, but beautiful. Yeah. Um, So I would say for people that if you start to, you know, if if the audience just starts to give themselves this space, um, the feelings will surface. But for anybody that's having overt, really overt clues of dis, um, discomfort and distress, then, you know, work with, work with a clinician or work with a coach or consulting. There's a lot of ways nowadays to yes, gain so this kind of work. Yep. It's not just now, you know, we're not in a time where it's like only you're on your own, right. Or you're on your own or or like only therapists can do this. There's a lot of people understanding these kinds of concepts and starting like yourself, like really starting to work within a spectrum that's, you know, these can be life changing tools and techniques for people. So they, yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I yeah. love, I love your kind of sentiment that like it, the stuff that feels so core to who you are, that's where you kind of want to look. I know that like yes. really rings true for like travel. I always had this thing about travel. Like when I was having panic attacks, I'm like, I have to travel. My husband's like, what is it with you in this? Like, tra- what? And yeah. I realized there was a lot of fear around it. Like that's how I defined myself. And if I couldn't do it, what or who was I? That's very scary, right? That's a very yeah. scary thing to, to look at. So I definitely see a lot of what you wrote um, in this blog ringing true for me. And while, you know, while my experience, again, it was a little more overt, big, big old punch to the face and, and the throat yeah. before I realized what was happening. Um, you know, it, it can also be much more subtle, like, like in your experience. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, it's an important thing to, to highlight. Actually, I'm glad you brought it up that, yeah, that's like a lot of times these kinds of intersections in our life, they make us rethink sort of core, like existential beliefs, beliefs we had. That we yeah. didn't even know they were beliefs. You know, I was totally, like, no, I have to travel. Like, that's just what you Yeah, have it was to just do. like an automatic, <laughs> a fact. right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and those kinds, those are my favorite intersections, right? right? Like I'm always looking for the big existential intersections with anybody that I'm collaborating with, because right. that's where all the good stuff is, yep. but they are very things. intense. And I, I challenge people to replace the word scary with intense. And it's not because I want it to feel less scary, but intense is the actual biologic thing that's happening, right? It's, it doesn't have a value on good or bad and Mm. scary goes right to bad. Negative connotation. Totally. And so it's intense. These are intense intersections, but all the good stuff comes from these intersections in our life. And the, the struggle of it is a really important phase in learning the next Thing to sort of your next right. notch of, of involvement, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it is, you're right. You have to really look at the parts of your personality that you were sort of wedded to yeah. as an <laughs> step. Oh yeah. 
That's yeah. a good way to put it. Wedded to. Yeah. <laughs> Forever yeah. and ever till death do us part. Exactly. Sickness and health. <laughs> Sickness it's a big health. phrase right there. Really? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for hopping on the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's great, as always. Oh, I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. <laughs> Good. I'll look forward to it. That's our episode. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and take a minute to write a review on iTunes so we can reach and support more people. If you're looking for more resources like one-on-one coaching courses or have a question you'd like answered on the show, please visit notanotheranxietyshow.com. You can also get a free ebook there by subscribing to my newsletter. And until next time, remember, be kind to yourself. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.